pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for this scripture. God, we thank you for this time just to sit together and think through it and talk about it and, and worship you through coming to know you more, coming to know your word more, coming to know your son more. God, uh, give me wisdom and um, just clarity as, we, as, as I lead the church and really thinking through these words and this reflection. In your name we pray, amen. amen. So I am, as Pastor Meek said, a professor, and I'm used to speaking to a room of about 250 students for an hour, so I'm going to try to keep it shorter than that. Um, but also, it's, this is my first time speaking in front of a, a church, despite having grown up in the church, so I'm just so thankful for the opportunity um, to do this. And it's a bit nerve-wracking, because also there's a lot more wisdom in this room than in a room of 250 college freshmen and sophomores. <laughs> um, so uh, let me just read this, re- read this again and then um, start talking about this, uh, this passage through the lens of, of love. Who has believed, and I'm going to read a bit different version, but then in the notes that I have, I also go back to the, the NIV that we, that we had read earlier. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a, ten, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I look at this passage and, and today's reflection is going to be on looking at this through the lens of love and uh, some aspects of what I will reflect on today also I really owe to my wonderful wife, Julie. Um, we have reflected on this together over this past week and yesterday we were talking about this and I, I said, Oh, pastor gave me love to talk about, and I feel really uniquely unqualified to talk about it. I mean, it's, it's such, the, the, this passage and what this passage tells us is so deep and something that I fall so far short of. Um, so I, I said, like, how am I the one to, to talk about this? And Julie goes, well, you're not. <laughs> She goes, but nobody is. Um, so this, this, you know, we have an example and thank God for his love uh, that we have and that we get to reflect and live out in our lives. From, you know, this, this text doesn't, doesn't mention love by the word as I think the, the past four Sundays, only one of those Sundays, um, peace is actually mentioned in the text. But I want to draw out three things that to me this, this text speaks to about love. Um, The first one is that contrary to how the dominant culture envisions love, it has a repulsive element, an aspect that will always be repulsive, rejected, um, at least by the culturally dominant conceptions of love, both in our times and in in the time when when Isaiah 
spoke these words, when the Lord spoke these words through Isaiah. Um, the second uh, aspect that I draw from this is that love has a context. It's not abstract. It's concrete. Um, and the third one that flows from that is that in the human context, that love demands incarnation. Um, it demands that God enter flesh into or into our material world. So I'm going to walk through each of these aspects of, of love. So the first one, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Let me start off with the, the kind of skipping the first verse and just jumping into the second half of the, the second verse that we're given. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, in the previous chapter, Isaiah 52, 14 says, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is not love at first sight. Maybe some of you have experienced that, like an initial, you know, whether it's, it's between yourself and a romantic way or just with friendships. You know, you, you meet somebody, you see somebody, you hear somebody talking, you see the way somebody is holding themselves and you're like, hey, you know, I like that person or I want to be friends. Um, you find this kind of attraction to somebody. And what's interesting to me about this is that Isaiah is clearly like, you know, talking and representing love in a way that directly runs against that, right? So, I mean, the Bible recognizes both the, the, the romantic sort of physical attraction, um, what people call uh, eros, you know, like romantic love. Um, that's there, you know, song of songs, think about that. And, you know, the story of Isaac and Rebecca, it's there throughout the Bible of, of, you know, that there are people who see each other and have this physical attraction be that, you know, a man and a woman, friendships between people. Um, this exists there, right? And, uh, and again, you know, we're not necessarily talking about just romantic love. There's also this sort of brotherly love, phileo, that is, is there throughout the Bible. Um, we think about in terms of, like, charismatic attraction, right? Friendships and also leadership. But this passage is about agape, unconditional love. It's, it's not, and, and uh, what I want to start by thinking about or thinking through is it's not just in uh, opposition to the sort of like love at first sight. Uh, it's also in opposition to the ideal image of a leader that Israel had. So um, the first, it's definitely a direct contrast with Israel's first king, who was Saul. Okay, so let's, let's jump back and think about Saul, right? This is a time when Israel demanded a king. And they were like, hey, God, give us a king. God was like, no, you don't need a king. You do not need a, a human leader to lead you. And they kept saying, no, we want to be like everybody else around us. We want a king. Give us a king. And in 1 Samuel 9, 2, we're told that Saul was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everybody else. So he's this ideal sort of leader, right? Big, strong guy, probably charismatic a little bit, like even though he's, he's kind of funny in that way, right? They went to look for him, and he was, like, hiding so that they didn't, they didn't find him. But he was big and strong, looked like a leader. And the word desire that we see here in the text, there's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him in Isaiah, right? This is in contrast to Saul, um, because Sam, Saul comes to Samuel, and the prophet Samuel asks Saul, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your family, Right? So Saul is this image of a leader with, who, who looks good, right? He, people desire him, like, yeah, that's the kind of person that we want for our, our king. 
But we're, and we're told also there's another parallel here, right? When we think about this, this passage of Isaiah that is pointing to Jesus and to Jesus' death on the cross, um, Saul, when he became leader, was about 30 years old. So right in the same age range, right, um, as Jesus was when he went to the cross. So I take this passage at one level as a study in contrast, right? The, the, the kind of pe- the leader that people want, you know, at first blush, like, hey, we want somebody strong to lead us. Um, and the leader that God is pointing them to, like, hey, what you actually need. But there's, a, there's another contrast that kind of comes between Saul and Jesus, right? So what do we know about Saul? What happened to his kingship? It didn't go so well. Yeah, what happened? He, he looked good on the outside, right? But his heart abandoned and went its own way. And ran, and he ran after his own, uh, his own desires, his own power, and um, this initial attraction and desire for his leadership, right, sort of fades away. And um, and then after Saul, we have a new king who comes about. Who's that? So David, right? So David um, is a, a, an initial contrast with Saul, right? So when we see David coming, we're we're told actually. Uh, a little later in 1 Samuel, um, you know, the Lord said to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. Now, the interesting thing to me, the thing to me though, is, is David is still not, you know, like the, the, this Isaiah passage is not, still not talking about David or any any just human leader up to that point, right? Because David, we're still told also, like David was glowing with health. He had a fine appearance and handsome features. Um, but still the emphasis in David's kingship turns from the kind of physical and personal uh, charisma, these sorts of things, toward his heart. So Saul and David are like, if we think of them as kind of this initial contrast, like the, the leader that the people want, that they desire, to David, you know, the person who they don't necessarily desire, but who they need. And then we're talking about Christ, this passage in Isaiah, as, as even more of a contrast with both of them, right? So um, disfigured and marred beyond human likeness. Um, the, this, this, that there's, the, the passage says there's nothing to attract us to him by sight. So this imagery is designed to paint us a picture of love by contrasting God's definition of love and God's uh, showing us what love looks like in action um, and contrasting that with our common human definitions. And this is a direct illustration of what the scriptures define as love. So if we look right, we don't see love defined in our, our text for today, but um, 1 John 4.10 tells us this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I, I'm going to talk a bit back and forth between this Isaiah passage in 1 John 3 and 4 um, because, you know, when you read 1 John, you're like, okay, well, that sounds, it kind of like is abstract enough that it kind of sounds all well and good, right? Like, yeah, God loves us so much. That's a great feeling to have. Isaiah is telling us in much more gritty, ugly, dirty detail what that love actually looks like. Suffering, being rejected, 
being made ugly, disfigured, marred. I mean, like what the to the max extent of what a human can bear. That is, it doesn't even that that Christ when he is so when he's put on the cross and cross crucified doesn't even look human anymore. And amidst all that process, also the object of Christ's love, which is us, we're totally rejecting him. Totally rejecting that effort, finding it um, despicable, disrespectful, uh, disrespectable. So back to the text, right? It, um, Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So as he's doing, as he's loving us beyond what we could imagine, we're holding him in in low esteem, despising, rejecting. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So, you know, that, that this, this passage tells us about love, tells me about love. The essence of love is in action, not in feeling, not in attraction. But, and if this is true, then the essence of love also emerges in people's willingness to go through the most extreme circumstances on behalf of those that they love, making themselves ugly, despicable, unlovable in pursuit of the person or the object of, of, of their, their love. And, I mean, think about us and the way we love. It's like, I know myself so often, I'm like, well, I love you, but... <laughs> right? Like, get yourself together. Get yourself in shape. Uh, I, I love you to this, to this point, right? Like, we have a line. We're like, I love you to this point, but you kind of, you, to- you step across the line, you know, all right, I'm, I'm cutting it off. Um, and, and we, this is, this is how we approach it. And the con- then Isra- uh, Isaiah is giving us such a contrast here. So this is love's repulsive element, as I put it, right? It sort of feels good to say, like, we have this, in, in our culture, we talk about, talk about love all the time. Dominant culture talks about, you know, all you need is love. Or let's just get together and love each other right now. Um, it sounds simple, right? But if we translate that into biblical terms, we might be saying something like, all you need is to be willing to make yourself utterly despised, to suffer rejection, to become ugly, to die for the sake of the, the people that you love. I mean, that's a very, very different message. And that's God's love for us. So, the second thought that I have from this passage is, love has a context. So for me, but I think also for other people, this kind of question comes up. All right. Did God really have to do all that? Like, I mean, think about it. In one form, there's this idea that there, there is an idea out there that like the Bible's just expressing kind of metaphorically what God would be willing to do for it, right? It's not like, it's not actual fact. It's just telling like a story and it's saying like God loves you this much that he would be willing to do this for you. Um, it's like when you say, you know, I, die, I would die for you. You're like, you actually mean it, right? Like that you have that feeling of affection and a burning love and self-sacrifice because you care for somebody that much, but like, I'm not actually going to have to do that, right? <laughs> and and it, according to a line of thinking, like that's all that God needs to do. If he really has that feeling, that affection for us, couldn't he just save us without doing all the dirty work? Um, like, so I, you know, those of you who know me know I, I've worked overseas a lot. I have a lot of friends who are Muslim. 
And in Islam, this is, this is a, a principle that I talk about a lot with my friends. Um, and in Islam, the principle is that God cannot become man because he is too holy, too perfect. Um, and there is, you know, I think contrary to kind of popular understanding in, in the U.S., how people think about Islam, there are elements of grace in Islam. It's like you, you put in your work and God, you know, forgives the rest. Um, and, you know, you, you, you do your prayers and you do the, these fasting and these certain things. And, and God, like the rest is, there is an element of forgiveness and grace. But it's, it's like, you know, th- this God can just remain up there, remain totally holy, uh, you know, apart from human affairs. And just, he's powerful, right? And this is, this is like an appealing, to me, in, in a way, this is an appealing thought. Like God is just powerful enough. We can just say, I forgive you. I love you. I forgive you. And like, we're all good, Right? Um, he can just rescue people from afar without getting soiled by coming into the world. So this is, you know, I think there's an attraction to this sort of thinking. But Isaiah is telling us something very, very different from that. If, if love emerges in people's willingness to go through extreme circumstances for the one they love, well, like, this is the question. Is it enough just to be willing? Right? Is that what we need? So I imagine a situation in which, like, okay, somebody's kid falls into, like, an ice-filled river, right, and is getting swept away by the current. And, the, and you know, the parent is, is obviously going to dive into the river to save them, um, risking their life, like hypothermia, you know, getting washed away in the current, to go and save their child, to make sure, like, at least, you know, if, if the child dies, like, I'm going to be there with them and, like, make sure, like, do my best to rescue them, right? Does that person love their child more than I love mine? I've never done that, right? Um, and I would say no. I'm like, no, I love my child just as much as that because I would do that. I would do that. But, and, and this, to, this contrast is, like, to point out the situation that God was in was not just saying, oh, hey, like, we're good, but if you jumped into an ice-filled river, I would be there to rescue you. We need rescuing. Yes, exactly. Look, we're, we're there. We're drowning. We're in the water. We're being swept away with the current. We desperately need it. So let me jump ahead by one verse uh, to Isaiah 53, 6. Isaiah's description of our objective situation is, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So, when I say love has a context, this is the context in which which God demonstrates his love. It's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, the context is our sin and brokenness, our thinking that we're better than God, our thinking that we're, we're own, our own kings, right? Um, we're, we think we're the bosses of our own little world. Like, you know, imagine sheep going astray and sort of wandering around, nobody to gather them together. And like, imagine each sheep thinking that it's the king of its own little like 10 foot by 10 foot square of grass and how ridiculous that would be. You know, you're, you're like, you're a sheep. You think you're king. Um, and, and, and this is also to point out that our worlds, right, our, our worlds and our relationship to God, like we are very material beings. We have, we're in this world where we have our little kingdoms, right? Whether it's, you know, our apartment, our house, our, our family, our cars, our material things, our relationships. 
Um, we are material beings. And so where it's not just like our thoughts are the only things that matter and God can like, we can, you know, we just relate with God with our minds. Uh, and, and we have bodies. We have pain that's, that distracts us. Fleshly desires, right? Physical interactions with the world around us. And, and the point here too is that like, so our relationship with God takes on aspects of this material world that we live in in that sense um right and think about like why god has to come and and rescue us well god created all of the material world and he created us originally to rule over that material world and to do it well and to do it reflecting his love his grace his goodness right but and and when mankind sinned even this physical world that we live in even our little 10 foot by 10 foot patches of grass on the hillside got corrupted by sin, right? The, 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 this, everything in this world is subjected to death. And we've been talking about that some in our regular study of, of Romans before we started this Advent series, right? That creation itself is groaning. So because he loves us, God can't just say, oh, hey, I, you know, I would do anything for you. I'd be willing to... to jump in a river, freezing river for you. Like, he enters that space. He comes in. He's, he's not just willing to do it. He does it. And moreover, he does it when it's just a one-way street. Isaiah is telling us, like, there's no mutual love there. We're all rejecting him. And yet, it's, it, you know, it's, it's so one-sided. So remember John's definition of love. I said, you know, 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sounds good. Okay, Isaiah is telling us, what does that look like? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, right, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the punishment that brought us shalom um, was on him and by his wounds we are healed. So our, our wandering, the point here is like our wandering from God is a very concrete thing. And God rescues us by entering into our material worlds and dealing with the very worst aspects of them. The cross. That's the worst, right, suffering and mutilation that, that we can think of. And this is love context. It's the world that exists. So we can talk about love as our culture is wont to do in the abstract. We can talk about the abstract love all we want, right? But God's love takes a unique form that matches exactly what we need. And then the, the last bit I'll say is, uh, I'll turn to is incarnational love, right? So another way of saying this is like, love demands incarnation, that God become flesh and live among us. The fact that all of creation was subject to decay through mankind's sin in the Garden of Eden means that the rescue also takes material form. God had to get his hands dirty by the rules that he himself had set when he made the world a world in which people were supposed to be ruling over, you know, our, his kingdom. Um, our kingdoms were not supposed to be our little sort of worlds that we think we have complete control over, but this is his world. And what we know about Jesus also affirms this, right? The material sacrifice is demanded. So again, to address that aspect of like, well, it's enough to be willing to do something. Remember what Jesus said in, in Luke 22, we're told um, in the moments before being arrested, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, 
He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Like this is material suffering on our behalf. Extreme, intense suffering. And the question that I, I read here, right, is it, it, that, that Jesus is saying, like, I don't, I think Jesus knew when he asked that question, hey, if there's another way, you know, if you're willing, take this cup from me. If there's another way to do this, let's, let's, let's go that way. I think Jesus knew the answer. I know that Jesus knew the answer to that question, but that's our question, right? If there's another way we can be okay with God without all the sort of like, you know, self-sacrifice and, and goriness and, and all that, like, let's go, let's do that, right? Um, Jesus on the cross suffering this torment is the ultimate embodiment of love in a way that's concrete and it's on our level. So what does that mean for us, right? Jesus loved us first and we're called to be mirrors of his love. Uh, Catherine's been leading a great discipleship group this, and we've we've talked a lot about mirroring and reflecting. Um, And I I just love the, the sort of aspects of that. So, so the question to me is, you know, how do we reflect this self-sacrificial love? Well, we have to be willing to love in a way that the world considers beneath them crazy um, and dirty. And this is the love that, that Christmas is about, as we, we think about what this passage means for us at Christmas. So uh, I have a, a poem to turn to before the, the last little bit. And this is not mine, actually. So as I mentioned, that, that our, we as a family were sort of thinking about this passage. Um, and Julie wrote this poem as a reflection um, on this passage. And she said, you can read my poem and tell them that it's by me, but you're going to butcher it because it's supposed to be more spoken word than you know how to do. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best. Uh, all right. Oh, beloved, you have run in a million directions, fighting to define love as though every individual has the answer, as though a broken flesh could possibly give you the love your half-beating heart is asking for. My love, it began in a manger, messy, smelly, uncomfortable, unappreciated. My love, it was carried to the cross, bruised, bleeding, scorned, shamed. This love, it costs life, identity. It defies all reason. Your hopeful minds have wished upon every shining star to light the way, to lead to love. But a thousand galaxies could never light your life like my dying body on the cross. And if, in fact, this love is real, beloved, let your heart be grieved over every ounce of pain that made you seek relief. My body, it was broken, it was dead. Beloved, this is love. It goes against any rationale, flowing fast against the tide, but in the wrestling of the current, I am every gentle flow. O soul, you will tread on every rocky path, every thorny bush will pierce, the soft dirt will carry you through, because to love is to give, is to sacrifice, is to surrender. The act of love, it gets mixed with the trauma, scrambled with the hope, covered with the grace, fueled by the reality of love outside your own. So thanks, Julie, for those thoughts. So, as, as John says in 1 John 4, Dear friends, since God 
so loved us, we ought to love one another. Right? We love because he first loved us. And, the, and what Isaiah tells us about that, it confirms what we see in 1 John as well. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Because your definition of love doesn't comport with theirs. Right? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. But this is not a model of love that we're given in this text as just a sort of like, it's a, it's a little bit off from the world's, you know, feel good sort of feelings, uh, you know, individualistic definition. Uh, it's despicable to that version of love. And, and I'm not saying that love is, is never a feeling or that the love of Christ doesn't ever feel good or give us comfort, right? We, we learn that from this passage too. Like the, the, his love gives us peace. Um, more deeply and enduringly than anything in the world offers. And that's part of what makes what was initially so unattractive, right? This, this bre- uh, bleeding, bruised body of Christ. Uh, it's so attractive in the end. Because, my friends, we're all going to suffer. Whether you're a billionaire or a kid on the street, like you're united in, in, in your humanity by facing difficulties and ultimately being subject to death. But we who believe have a great God who suffered on our behalf so that we have a leader in love. Not good looking like Saul or David, right? A king who leads from the top. But this servant king who walks through the most repulsive, horrifying aspects of what it means to be human. And even beyond what it means to be human. So disfigured beyond human form. Um, In order to, to teach us and enable us to do the same. But more than that, it's the love that draws us, as John says, from death to life. Right? It's not just a model. It's not just like, well, hey, follow me and do what, do what I do. Kind of, it, it is that. But it's much more than that. Um, because that ugliness and brokenness is not the end of the story. So God getting his hands dirty by becoming human is not about God like playing by the rules of death playing by the rules of the world, right? It's not like, well, I made the world this way, so I've got to go and just play by the rules and kind of make the sacrifice and everything. Um, It's about Jesus breaking those laws by fulfilling them completely, right? Dying in such an ugly manner, but then rising again and triumphing over death. So that's what this is about. It's not just the example and saying like, hey, well, like, jump in the frozen river, you know, to save each other. You know, live out this self-sacrificial love. Yes! But more than that, Christ draws us through his love from death into life. So, my friends, um, as we're on this journey through the Advent season, celebrating the incarnation of Christ as a tiny baby, um, born in a stable in the Middle East, you know, what what a wonder. What a wonder that God, a holy God, so infinitely powerful, so beyond our reach, so unlike us that we can hardly even like fathom or understand a slice of his being, became a baby destined to suffer uh, and to die to reunite us with himself. So since God loved us so, we also ought to love one another. And, and I want to just conclude by saying this, like we, you know, we're called to actually go to the ends of the earth, not only for each other, but also for God himself, who we are called to love. The Lord deserves our love already just by his nature, by being God, but he earned it a thousand times over, a million times over by what he's done for us. Well, let's pray.
Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come to you in the name of Jesus and we're able to come to you in that name because of what Jesus has done for us. Of tearing down the veil, of, of breaking down the barrier between us and you. Lord, by coming and, and living according to the rules that we live by in order to shatter all of those rules, Lord, and to reunite us with you. God, we just thank you so much that you are a God who became incarnate for us, who became flesh, who is so holy that we cannot even imagine. We're told, you know, that, that humans could not look at you without dying, um, Lord, and that you, for example, shielded Moses from seeing your glory. Um, Lord, we just fall on our faces before your glory, and we also just thank you so much, Lord, for becoming flesh for us, for loving us that much, for suffering for us. And God, I, I pray that you would just continue to bring that message home to our hearts, um, that we would be preaching that gospel to each other, that we'd be preaching that gospel to our kids, to those around us. Um, Lord, that you would, just as, as you became flesh and dwelt among us, that you w- would give us who are flesh here in the world, that you would just, Lord, give us that incarnational ministry. Give us that heart to, to suffer and to serve, um, Lord, and, and in doing so, to draw people to you and to let them know that the curse is broken. You've done it. Uh, through your love, Lord, we, we, are, we are brought peace, and we, are, we, we want to bring that message of peace to the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.